Well, it is great to be with you here today. Last Sunday, uh, it was a little light in the attendance. Pastor Ben and I were the only ones here. But that was just to, you got to check things out on a snow day, right? But it was great. I'm glad that you were uh, safe and sound in, in your, uh, some of you, your, your powerless homes. Um, I felt bad. Some were without power for uh, as much as five days. Um, I offered showers uh, when I was in town. I was out of town for part of it. Um, and I saw that others of you did as well. Thank you for being so gracious and, and offering uh, things like that, those conveniences um, which were needed. But it's great that uh, it seems like all has been restored. And so we are able to get together here today. I'm excited about this series. Um, in fact, I'm so excited that last, uh, last week when I didn't get to preach on Sunday, I decided that I would preach it on Wednesday. So some folks uh, were able to, to be here on Wednesday. So I shared that message on Wednesday. And, uh, you know, sometimes just things don't always work right. The audio is available online, but the video, for some reason, uh, did not take, and so that is not available. So uh, if you want to hear the rest of this series, you can go online and, and listen to that audio. Uh, it's there. And so we're in a series of messages called Believe. And I think what an appropriate uh, series for the month of December leading up to Christmas. And so um, I've really been excited about this. And so I want to start with a question this morning. And I think that this is a very relevant question. And, and before I, I ask the question, I want to I want just close your eyes for a second. Okay. Close your eyes, and this is going to be a hard exercise, and, and especially for, I think, for some of the guys that are here, but um, close your eyes, and, and I want you to imagine, okay? I want you to imagine, not, not Black Friday or anything, but I want you to imagine just uh, being, you're, you're, out, uh, you're out at a store, and you're doing some shopping, and I want you to think for a moment about what you hear over the public address system. What do you hear? You hear music happening, and what is that music saying? That music is literally proclaiming that Jesus is born, that Jesus is the Son of God. You can open your eyes. This is a time during our year when the rest of the world gets caught up in, in Christmas, and, and it's been made a lot of things. But when you go into the store and you hear those lyrics and you listen to that music, you know that the message of Jesus Christ is being communicated in our culture. Yes, a lot of things are wrong, but that foundation is there, and that message is still being heard to millions and millions of people in our country. So let me ask this question with that in the background. Can we convincingly prove that there was a baby whose name was Jesus, who was born to a virgin, who was laid in a manger, 
announced by angels, celebrated by shepherds and wise men, who was and is the very Son of God sent to be the Savior of all mankind? That's a big question. But I want you today to think about that question. I want you, because you see, the world believes that it's just a myth. It's just a story. And they have, they have put that out there, that it's just, the same way that Santa Claus, in fact, they work harder to prove the reality of Santa Claus than they do the reality that Jesus in the manger was the Son of God. They work harder at it. They've said of the birth of Jesus that it was just a myth. Last week, we talked about the, the eyewitness accounts that are verifiable, that are accepted as historically accurate, that Luke was who he says he was, and that Luke got his story from the Apostle Paul, who heard it straight from the eyewitnesses of the disciples, that Matthew himself was a disciple, and that he was a witness, and that he, he knew Mary, that he knew Jesus, that he knew these things that he wrote about. Last week I talked about two things that were really important. One is proximity. When it comes to an eyewitness account, proximity is important. In other words, the closer that someone is physically to an event happening, the more reliable that eyewitness account is. I shared a cool story from uh, a family vacation that we had about my proximity to a crime. I was considered a, a really good uh, interview by the security person because it happened five feet away from me. I had close proximity. The other thing is the idea of time. The shorter the gap of time between an event and the written account of that event, the greater the accuracy of that account or of that eyewitness. So now I want to go and take another step and ask this question. What other evidence can we find that's going to shed light on the testimony of Jesus' birth? Now, you may find yourself today, you're sitting here in church, but really in the depths of your heart and your mind, you might have to admit to yourself that you are skeptical of the historical accounts because you have more of a scientific approach to how you see history and how you see Jesus. But I want you to know that science can help us solve mysteries in our world today. Science can, can help us unravel things that confound us as human beings. Let me give you a quick illustration of that. I want to take you out to California. How many of you would like to be in California today? Sunny Southern California. There's a couple of us that, that would like to be. Let's go to Death Valley. That might be a little too sunny for those of us that live here in the UP. But in Death Valley, there are hundreds of these carved out trails that appear behind rocks. Have you seen this before? 
They are rocks out in the middle of the desert in Death Valley, and these rocks appear to be moving. They appear to be leaving a trail behind them, and the trail is literally etched out in the crust of the dried mud. And this has had people confused for years. And, 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 and science has looked at this, and they studied, and, and nobody knows why. Nobody can figure it out why. Nobody saw some teenagers out in the desert dragging these rocks, okay, so that they leave a trail so that it makes it look like over the course of the year that these rocks are moving. Now, that would be a cool prank, okay, but science wasn't fooled. And so science did something that I think is, is, pretty, is pretty funny. They, they took GPS units and they attached them to the rocks. They used what many of you that, that hunt in the, uh, in the woods here in, uh, in the Upper Peninsula, they used uh, cameras. They used trail cameras to make sure that no one was, was, was pushing them around, was pulling them. They wanted to see exactly what happened. They used these, and they, what they did is used a time-lapse camera to study this phenomenon. Now, the summers in Death Valley are deathly hot, but, and we don't think about this, but in the wintertime, they actually can get a significant amount of rain, and these low-lying areas where these rocks are, actually, the rain will, um, will become measurable and, and will sit there on the desert floor, and, and it's actually a number of inches deep. And what happens is, in the desert, at night, sometimes it goes below freezing. And so that water will freeze. And then in the morning, when the sun comes out, the water begins to melt. And some of that ice will cling to that rock and actually buoy the rock enough so that when the wind picks up, it will actually push the rock ever so slightly. And this happens again day after day after day. And science has proved that these rocks will move as much as 730 feet in a calendar year. Something that was a mystery has been proven by science. It, the question has been answered. So here's my question for us today. Is there any type of science that we can use that's going to help to verify the claims of the New Testament regarding the Christmas narrative as put forth by Luke's and Matthew's gospel? And I want us to look at something interesting, and we're going to look at it from the science of archaeology today. The first thing that I want to tell you is there's an unequal burden of proof. And, and this, is, this is really important. And, and, and this morning, if you're a skeptic, I pray that you would open your mind and that you would open your heart. You may be someone here, though, that, that says, you know what, I, I believe. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I just don't know what to say to people when they try to challenge the biblical narrative. I believe that you're going to have something here today. Let's look at, first of all, Luke chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, 
the Lord. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> These scriptures, they say something very specific about who Jesus was. They both proclaim him to be the Messiah. They both say that he was the Son of God. John McRae, who is a PhD and professor of archaeology, says this, and I want you to get this. No matter which side you're on, whether you have total faith or you have some skepticism this morning, I want you to get this, and here it is. Spiritual truths cannot be proved or disproved by archaeological discoveries. I want, you to, I want you to grab onto that this morning. You say, well, wait a second, then why are you talking about, uh, about things that, that are of science from the archaeological standpoint? Because we're going we're gonna to build a case. We're going to be adding one thing onto the other. Let me talk to you for just a moment about our court system that we have here in America. When, when someone is taken to court, who has the burden to provide proof? Is it the plaintiff or is it the defendant? The proof is with the plaintiff. The, you are innocent until what? Proven guilty. And so when we look at our courts, our courts are based on someone, there, there is a sense of innocence until proven otherwise. When a crime is committed, the police will perform an investigation of that crime and they will interview people who are potential suspects, allowing them to tell their story about the events in question and they will see how those, the details that they're provided, how do they stack up? Do they stack up to be true? And if they are, if they are true one after the other, then it does something. When the authorities follow up because they'll say, they'll, they'll, they'll give their story, they'll check the details independently of that story. And if those details begin to be confirmed, if they are seen that they are truthful, uh, those that will begin to lead the authorities that their whole story could possibly be true. But if the details, some of the details of that story prove to be inaccurate, what it will do is it will increase uh, the, the fact that they have serious doubt about what this person says. So we, we understand that their testimony cannot accurately state if the entire story is true, but it certainly can give credibility or it can do just the opposite. Whatever that person says can lead the authorities to believe them or to not believe them, but it's, it's not all together in, in one lump sum. In determining the historical accuracy of the Bible, the responsibility for the burden of proof is different than in our courts. The responsibility lies with the Bible and those who believe it. Because those who doubt it and those who are critics of it go unchecked. 
and they just say, nope, sorry, it's not true. Or they may grab one fact that they believe or that they have researched and so they say the whole thing is not true. But let me talk to you a little bit further because when through investigation, the details concerning any ancient writings are confirmed again and again, it increases one's confidence in the reliability of that document and that author, even if every detail contained in it is, is, we, is humanly impossible to verify. The ones that are verifiable, if they turn up uh, positively and confirm time and time again, it increases our confidence in its reliability. But on the other hand, if through investigation it uncovers verifiable inaccuracies, it will cast significant doubt or complete doubt of the trustworthiness of that document. One accurate finding does not prove the case, but finding one inaccurate finding often will disprove it completely. Let me give you an example. In 93 AD, the secular Jewish historian, a man named Josephus, published a historical work that chronicled much of the Jewish history during uh, that first century when the Romans occupied Judea. And apart from Josephus' writings, there is literally nothing else outside of the gospel accounts. There is nothing else that has survived that tells about that century in Judea where the Romans were in control. Josephus said that at this time there was a man named Jesus. Now he said, if you can call him Jesus, a man. He said his name is Jesus, but, but you really can't even call him a man. And he said this because of the miracles that Jesus had done. He talked about how these things that he did led him to believe that he probably was not really a man the way other men are men. The historian uh, argued They've argued since the 17th century because Josephus went so far as to say Jesus was the Messiah. Now we know nothing about Josephus being a believer, but Josephus went as far as to say because of the miraculous things that Jesus did that he was the Messiah. Since the 17th century, they have been arguing and saying that Josephus never wrote those words because they sounded strangely familiar to another writer and so they believe that someone else took the words of that other writer and inserted there into Josephus' writings and therefore they could not be credited to Josephus. But as recently as 1995, new research confirms that Josephus' statement about Jesus in what is called his Testimonium Flavium was not a forgery and indeed they were written by Josephus. This is a problem because if we're finding out that what was written was actually written by Josephus, Josephus believes that Jesus was the Messiah. 
But what about the other things that Josephus wrote? Can they ultimately be confirmed? Josephus, he wrote about something that, that was, it was a simple thing. It was about a, 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 um, a port, a ship port, a harbor that existed that was called the harbor, the harbor of Herod the Great. It was located in Caesarea. And in his writings, Josephus said that that harbor was about the same size as the largest harbor in Athens, Greece. The problem is that simple observation shows that the harbor in Caesarea is nowhere near the same size as the largest harbor in Athens. And so therefore, Josephus is wrong. Therefore, Josephus is inaccurate and we can take what he wrote and we can get rid of it. But I want you to know that there are archaeologists, in fact, I quoted him earlier, John Ray, who himself conducted uh, a, a research project there in Caesarea, and he found, they did a study that went underground and below the surface of the water, and they were able to confirm that the more the earlier harbor there in Caesarea was much larger than what you can see above water. And they were able to confirm the dimensions of that harbor. And indeed, that harbor is of the same size of the, as the largest harbor in Athens, which now does not confirm the entire gospel story, but it does not disprove it either. Are you with me? When we look at the story of Jesus, when we look to confirm it, there are those who have written like Josephus, and instead of it disproving it, it begins to work the other direction. You see, the world wanted to think that Josephus was wrong, and if he can be wrong about something as simple as the size of a harbor, he, can cer he certainly cannot be trusted on reporting something as significant as Jesus being the Messiah. And so he's looked to be discredited. In determining the historical accuracy of the Bible, the burden of proof has fallen to the Bible, and the science of archaeology is responsible for proving that Joseph, or excuse me, that Josephus was indeed correct in his reporting. Anybody here ever uh, been mistaken for someone else? I want to talk for a second about mistaken identity. I got a text. Um, this week, and I, I, I got this text, and I, um, I, don't, I have an, an Apple Watch, and I don't understand how this stuff works, okay? Um, I'm just going to be honest and say that I just hand my stuff to Benjamin, and I say, hey, this doesn't work right, and magically it comes back, and it works. But I, I got a text, and I glanced at my text, or at my, my watch, where the message was, and it said, you're an imposter. That's kind of an intimidating uh, text. And so where, where I was at that moment, I, I did not have the ability to, to, to really take a look at it and read the whole text, but my interest was extremely piqued. Um, and so when I had the chance to, to, to sit down and be able to look at it, it literally said, aha, so you're an imposter. I knew the person that sent me the text. 
I'm, I'm, my, my, my interest is piqued. He said, I had a feeling. I'm sorry, I will have to contact the elders about this, Kevin. What, would you like that text? Would that be a good text? There's, I don't see any smiley faces, okay? I'm going to have to contact the elders about this. And I thought to myself, what in the world could this be about? And so as I went through the message, there's also an attachment of a picture. And the picture was of a bulletin from another church. And a pastor named Kevin Taylor was going to be speaking that day at that church. And he was a slightly younger man than myself. And he had more hair. Okay, he had hair um, <laughs> that I don't have. And, and so the, the, the text was a, a joke. He was being funny because he knew that that wasn't me, but yet that person's name was Kevin Taylor. And so in my response to him, I said, you don't even know the half of it. I said, in one of our churches in our district in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the church is called Journey Church. There is a, the lead pastor of that church. His name also is Kevin Taylor. And when you're in a meeting and two rows behind you, a guy stands up and says, I'm Kevin Taylor. It's a little freaky, okay? He's 6'4", I'm 5'4". Nobody confuses us when they see us together. But... And I'm not, I kid you not, while I'm preparing this message, I get a call from the district office, from one of the, the admins there, and she ha asks for Kevin Taylor. I pick up the phone, I say, this is Kevin. And immediately, it's like she froze. She said, I'm really sorry. I'm so sorry for bothering you. And I'm like, it's okay, don't worry, what, what do you need? I need the other Kevin Taylor. Okay? They know me. They know him. I have had at least three calls that I know of that people have thought they were calling the other Kevin Taylor. What I want to know is has he had any calls from people in the UP that thought that, that they were calling me? I don't think so. But... I want you to think about that. We can pick up the phone and we can verify. As soon as they heard my voice, they knew they had the wrong, excuse me, Kevin Taylor. As soon as they heard my voice, <clears throat> which has just left me. <clears throat> God has a sense of humor. <laughs> I'm going to struggle through this. <clears throat> We, we can't pick up the phone. <clears throat> it wouldn't matter right now anyway. No one could understand me. <clears throat> the accuracy of Luke's account of the life of Jesus has been in question for a long time. I want to give you a couple of examples. The first one, uh, I'm going to read Luke chapter 2, 1 through 3. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. 
Luke mentions various people within the Roman government that were leaders. And thank you very much. <clears throat> in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria, and Traconitus and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas. Now, here's the problem. It's a well-known fact that Lysanias was a ruler in Chalcis 50 years earlier. So therefore, Luke's historical account cannot be accurate because he has named a ruler. <clears throat> He's named a ruler that ruled 50 years earlier in another place. Case closed. Are you with me? Case closed. The problem is that archaeologists later found an inscription from the time of Tiberius between 14 and 37 AD naming Lysanias as the Tetrarch in Abila near Damascus. There were apparently two different Roman government officials named Lysanias. Isn't that hard to believe? Right? That's, that's hard to believe. Guys, this, this happened, I, the, the difference is it's easier to verify when you've got the wrong Kevin Taylor. They had the, but, but yet, because of that, they discredited Luke's historical account. While it's true that archaeological discoveries cannot prove the word of God, it's also a true statement that one single inaccuracy completely nullifies the legitimacy of the text in the world's eyes until it's proven that it's not incorrect. Let me give you another example. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. There were shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks, at night, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. The, 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 the veracity of, of Luke's gospel was commonly challenged. And so as we read about the things that happened the night the angels announced the birth of Jesus, we have to say, well, the whole thing is challenged. The whole thing is is potentially inaccurate because in Acts chapter 17, which Luke wrote... Verse 6, he uses a word called politarch to describe the city officials who brought charges against Paul. And, and, and historians, for a long time, they, they, they knew that there was no documented evidence of the word politarch used to describe magistrates or city leaders in Romans' government during that era. Therefore, Luke was wrong. And if Luke is wrong in Acts 17.6, Luke is wrong in, in Luke chapter 2 and 3. Are you with me? Do you see how that's done? That is until archaeologists discover the word politarch on an arch in the first century, which is now on display in the British Museum. And archaeologists have since discovered 35 other occurrences of the word 
Politarch from the first century, speaking of Roman rulers in that area. What once was a commonly accepted uh, commonly accepted as truth and knowledge, has now been refuted by science, the science of archaeology. Number three, I simply would say this, location, location, location. Isn't that what they say about the most important thing about real estate is location, location, location? Look at Luke chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee in Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and he gave Uh, And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. What if, what if you were not able to confirm the fact that Bethlehem was an actual city? What if you could not confirm that Bethlehem had ever existed? How would you feel about those words that Luke wrote? Do you know that for a long, long time, historians believe that there was no such thing as an ancient city of Nazareth. And because of that, they said that Luke's account could not be deemed as accurate. But there was a well-known archaeologist that decided, you know what, I'm going to study all the geographical locations that are mentioned by Luke in his gospel. And in his narrative, he mentions 32 countries, 54 cities. And I'm going to say that this also includes the book of Acts, okay, not just the book of Luke. 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands. And that archaeologist was able to determine that there was no mistake whatsoever and they have confirmed the location for a small town in the first century known as Nazareth. Friends, that archaeological discovery can't tell us that it's all true, but it tells us that it hasn't been disproven. So let me ask you this question. Because this is what the world would be asking if that discovery had not been found. If Luke t- uh, took such good care in his writing to be correct about the details of the geographical locations uh, in his writings, why would someone automatically assume that he would be reckless in his accounts of such crucial matters relating to the life of Jesus, to the lordship of Jesus. Why, if if Luke had been wrong about Nazareth, if Luke had been wrong about Bethlehem, how could we trust him that he would be saying accurately that Jesus was the Messiah? But we're finding out that these claims of, of, of whether it's cities or whether it's names that are used to describe government officials, that rather than being untrue, they are found to be true. This week in my devotions, I'm in the book of Acts, and, and I, I, I circled a word 
And, and I know that it, it relates to the fact that I'm working on this message and, and the word that I came across was the word proof. And I began to think about, the Bible talks about proof. And I, and I, I, I started thinking to myself and I thought, I wonder, I wonder if this is the only use of that word. And, and I knew that it hadn't been, but I, I looked at my concordance quickly and there were three or four uses of the word proof or proven. And they're from the book of Acts. And one of the best is from Acts chapter 1. And it's, it, it, it's written about the time that Jesus ascends to heaven after his resurrection and it's Acts 1-3, and it says, After his suffering, again, these are the words of Luke, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing, guess what word? Proofs. Many convincing proofs that he was alive. That word in the Greek, proofs, it means it's infallible. And it carries with it a certain conviction. Luke wasn't operating on some tiny shreds of evidence that he has woven together in order to try to create a narrative that can change history with falsehoods and conjecture. He was reporting on the convincing proofs that Jesus had given them. I've just enjoyed a book uh, here in preparation for this series. It's called The Case of Christmas by Lee Strobel. If you're into this, I just want to encourage you to get that. But Strobel asks an archaeologist if he'd ever run into a situation where archaeology discovery discredited or invalidated the New Testament narrative. And that archaeologist said this, archaeology has not produced anything that is unequivocally a contradiction to the Bible. On the other hand, many opinions of skeptical scholars that have become codified into fact over the years, but that archaeology has shown to be wrong. In other words, we're finding out more and more all the time that the things that God's word has said cannot be denied. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. I'm just going to have our, our, those that are going to serve, they're just going to move into place and begin to distribute those elements. And I'm going to ask the same question that I asked when I started my message can we convincingly prove that there was a baby whose name was Jesus, born to a virgin, laid in a manger, announced by angels, celebrated by shepherds and wise men, who was the very Son of God and sent to be the Savior of all mankind? That is a question that is relevant for our society today. It is relevant for our culture. It is relevant for us as individuals. And I know this, that we cannot answer that question without faith in Jesus. But I'm so glad that science continues to confirm the truth of God's word. And so today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, we are holding in our hands these elements I want you to think about it. 
as you have those elements, just look at them for a moment. The bread represents the body of Jesus. That little, little tiny cup of juice represents the blood of Jesus. We take communion and we don't even think of it. But I want you to think of this. That body came in a manger. That blood flowed through the body of that child. And that child grew and became the Jesus that hung on the cross for you and I, that died for our sins, that rose again on the third day. I'm just going to have the team just lead us for a moment. And we're going to, in just a moment when they're done, we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. We're going to pray together and we'll be dismissed. But I want you this morning, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I believe? Do I believe that there was a child in that manger whose name was Jesus? That the angels announced that the shepherds celebrated, the wise men celebrated that was the Son of God sent to the world to forgive us of our sins.